God's word this morning. It'll be a split passage. We will start by reading Matthew verse uh, chapter 26, verses 30 through 35, and then we'll jump over and read in the same chapter, verses 69 through 75. Again, we are in Matthew chapter 26, beginning verse 30. You can find this on page 989 of your pew Bible. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, "Uh, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just ask that as we delve into your word this morning, we reflect upon, um, Lord, this moment in Peter's life of, uh, of struggle and uh, denial in the midst of uh, possible persecution. Lord, we just ask that we would, um, Lord, just understand your grace that much more. God, that we would look at ourselves, we would... Um, Lord, have a better understanding of, Lord, how righteous and holy you are, Lord, and how sinful and needful uh, we are of your grace and your mercy in our lives. God, just uh, pour your grace out upon us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've ever fallen, if you've ever stumbled in your walk with the Lord, if you have ever sinned, then this sermon is for you. Which, by the way, means this is really for all of us here this morning. For we all have sinned, we've all stumbled, and we have all fallen in our walk with the Lord. And so I love that this story is recorded for us. The fall and rise of Peter. Over 45 years ago, though, on October the 30th, 1974... Muhammad Ali and George Foreman squared off in the boxing ring in Zaire, Africa. Muhammad Ali actually dubbed it the Rumble in the Jungle. Foreman was heavily favored and was considered to be the the hardest puncher in heavyweight history. George Foreman was confident. He was confident he could finish off this upstart boxer. And when he entered the ring, he intended to use all of his power to squash him. Ali, however, 
did something in that fight that no other fighter had ever tried before. In a technique that he actually called rope-a-dope, Muhammad Ali held up his arms against his face, leaned back against the ropes, allowing Foreman to punch away at him for eight rounds. One of the strongest boxers in history beat on Ali until he could punch no more. And that's when Ali bounced off the ropes and knocked out George Foreman, sending him into retirement. George Foreman was an overconfident boxer. He believed in himself, and he was overconfident in that belief. And yet he delivered the hardest, most powerful punches of any fighter who has ever fought in the ring, and he still lost. And not only did he lose, he suffered a blow from which he never recovered from. In fact, that fight, the rumble in the jungle, actually sent him into retirement. 2,000 years ago, there was another overconfident man, a fighter, one who feared nothing and feared no one. And obviously, his name is Peter. And like his name, he was a rock, a rock of courage, a rock of loyalty, a rock of strength. Peter was a man who, who actually left everything to follow Jesus. And for the most part, listen, Peter did follow Jesus. In fact, whenever there was something to say or something to do, Peter was the man. There is a lot to uh, model after Peter. There's a lot to say good things about him. In fact, Peter is also a disciple we most readily identify with, and for good reason. He's so transparent. He's so human. He's so vulnerable. And at times, Peter is just so downright real that we can easily see our own selves in him. Like all of us, Peter oftentimes spoke when he should have listened. He oftentimes acted when he should have waited. Sometimes he only opened his mouth to change feet, and at other times his words were immortal. But on this particular Friday night, or Friday morning, I should say, Peter the Rock would crumble before the rooster crows. It would be a day that he would never forget. And yet this day would actually mark the greatest turning point in his life. Because although Peter fell, and let me tell you, he fell miserably, he got up again. And God used him in phenomenal ways, as we will see here in a minute. And so Peter's fall, recorded here, it's in all four Gospels, but we'll look at it specifically in Matthew, his fall stands as a solemn example for all of us here this morning. In fact, notice... Here in your notes, the big idea. Peter's failure to stand firm is a warning. His story, and in particular, his failure to stand firm is a warning about misplaced confidence in self rather than Jesus Christ. Now, you could probably finish this sentence with me. Pride comes before a fall. We know that. We've heard that a lot. 
In fact, that isn't just a pithy statement that your grandmother used to say. It's actually a paraphrase from Proverbs 16, 18 that says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In fact, the Bible is actually full of warnings about the danger of overconfidence or, or misplaced confidence in self. Such as when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Misplaced confidence. It's foolish. And spiritual overconfidence, let me tell you, can be disastrous. One of the hidden dangers of falling is the surprise of it all. People don't expect to slip and fall on the ice. People don't plan to fall down the stairs. And when it happens, we're oftentimes surprised by it. In fact, we may even be embarrassed by slipping and falling on the ice. In fact, sometimes it goes so far, we're even hurt by it. And the same is true spiritually. People don't plan to fall in their Christian walk with the Lord. People don't plan to to deny Jesus Christ, like Peter did. We don't plan out our personal low points and embarrassing moments in our devotion to Christ. Instead, the fall catches us by surprise. Often when we think, that would never happen to me. I've got it all together, and bam! That's when we fall. But Peter's fall shows us just how vulnerable we really are to falling, especially when our confidence is misplaced in ourselves rather than Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at, and hopefully you will open your heart to see with your heart as well as your eyes in this text, here in the Bible, Matthew 26, the three-act drama of Peter's fall and rise. Three acts. Act number one is Peter denies Jesus and he does it repeatedly. Act number one, Jesus denies Jesus repeatedly. Now, to understand Peter's fall, we really need to see it in its context. And Matthew, in particular, placed the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter side by side in order to set up this dramatic contrast between Jesus in his trial and Peter, who is also in his own personal trial. And we see this uh, from Matthew's perspective by taking note of the now, the word now in verse 59 and the now in verse 69. Look in your Bibles with me and notice it for yourself. The first now in verse 59. It takes us inside to Jesus' trial when Matthew writes in verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. The second now in verse 69 takes us outside to Peter's trial. Verse 69 says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him. So what you have here is this contrast that Matthew's showing us. Jesus is in a trial. He stands firm in it. We looked at that last Sunday. But Peter, at the same time, is also in his trial as well. 
And what we see here is while Jesus fearlessly stands firm before the most powerful religious authorities in Jerusalem, and he does that inside the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas' house, outside the courtyard, Peter fearfully falls flat on his face, and he does so before a powerless servant girl. Somehow, Peter, who who moments earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, drew his sword to fight a mob of soldiers, now, now, cowers under a few accusations from some unarmed servants. So what happened to Peter? I mean, how could Peter fall so easily in the moment here, and so quickly? I mean, was Peter not prepared for this? Well, the events... At the end of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, shed more light on Peter's actions. And what we find there is that before Peter ever blows it, Jesus actually calls it. But in his overconfidence, Peter just outright ignores it all. Notice this with me. Jesus calls it. In fact, Jesus, first of all, warns Peter what he can't see. He warns Peter what he can't see. Have you ever found yourself responding to what you think someone is saying without actually understanding what they are saying. I'm afraid many of us do this a lot. We see Peter do this at the end of the Lord's Supper. And like us, it seems to be the result of giving himself just a little too much credit. Jesus begins this discussion by telling the disciples that they will, what? That all of them will fall away during his suffering. And so Jesus is doing something for his disciples. He's doing something here in the moment that is more than just predicting the future. He's actually warning them. He's warning his disciples of stuff that they cannot yet foresee. They don't get it. They don't see it. And Jesus is graciously warning them, much like a parent does with a child. Be careful there. I know in your immaturity as a child or teenager, you can't see this, but I'm telling you, this is what you need to look out for. And it's the same thing here. Jesus predicts that 12 out of 12 will abandon him. He says in verse 31, look at it, you will all fall away because of me this night. And so at the same time, Jesus gives them hope. He gives them reassurance in verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, what is interesting, if you go over to Luke's gospel, Luke actually sheds a little more light on this conversation. Jesus, at this point, turns to Peter and tells him in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. So even there, again, Jesus is reassuring. He's offering them hope. Jesus knows. But the disciples, and especially Peter here, don't seem to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. It's it's like they're clueless. In fact, if you put all this together you get a clear picture that there's something happening here that the disciples cannot fully see. 
They don't have the the necessary spiritual eyesight to see what Jesus is saying to them. Satan and its spiritual warfare. Jesus understands this. And so he warns Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Why? To destroy you. But I am praying for you, Peter, to deliver you. The disciples, yes, Jesus is warning them. You will all abandon me on my way to the cross. But they're falling away at the same time, Jesus tells them, will not be forever. It is not permanent as Jesus will actually go before them and eventually meet up with them after the resurrection in Galilee. So even though Jesus tells Peter about the future, Peter doesn't get it. He can't see it. He's clueless about it. And here's the problem. He thinks he does. And this is where spiritual overconfidence begins. You see, we oftentimes express our pride, our arrogance, by thinking that our knowledge, our perception, our view is completely accurate. When we simply need to admit that we don't always see things as clearly as we think we do. And more importantly, we oftentimes don't see ourselves. We don't see our own motives, our own hearts, like we think we do. And so Peter, I mean, Jesus warns Peter of what he can't see. Jesus is calling it, and then Peter responds, and it's unbelievable. Peter boasts now what he shouldn't say. He boasts what he shouldn't say. Peter's arrogance And brashness combined in a statement that is now loaded with overconfidence in himself in verse 33. When he responds to Jesus and says, though they all fall away because of you, I, I will never fall away. Before the cock crows, at the end of the story, Peter here, it's so interesting. He is hollering like a high-pitched peacock at the start of it. Not only does Peter boast in his own courageous faith, he builds himself up by cutting others down. In fact, Peter says, Jesus, I agree with you. You just can't trust those disciples. You can't trust them. They're going to fall away, but you can trust me. I never would fall away. And he says it this, with them still in the room. They're right there. They hear it. Can you imagine it? He's basically throwing his friends under the bus, and then he gets in and drives it. This is the bravado of Peter. Such overconfidence. Peter assumes that the others could fall, but he would never fall. He uses the other disciples as the backdrop by which he looks at himself. Jesus tries to correct Peter by making what should have been a shocking statement in verse 34. Jesus tells him, Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night, listen to me, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, Peter should have been put back on his heels by that statement. Think of what Jesus is saying there with those words. I tell you, this very night. But Peter's words are so hollow that it will be merely a few hours before he verifies how empty his words really are. It's going to be this very night. 
And Jesus says, before the rooster crows. Now, that's interesting because that's more than just a time stamp. What Jesus is doing, he's, he's saying that that is something that reflected Peter's bravado. In other words, he's comparing Peter's bravado and a rooster crowing. Jesus is comparing Peter to the strutting rooster that crows. And then he says, you'll deny me three times. Jesus is telling Peter that he will not just fall, but he will fall flat on his face. He will deny him not once, not twice, but three times. He'll do it repeatedly. Now, at this point, you would think Peter would say something like, Oh, my Lord. Jesus, are you serious? Man, if that's true, then, then I better watch out. In fact, I better pray all the more with you. We're going to the garden. Let me go with you and watch and pray as Jesus will try to tell him to do. But spiritual overconfidence, when it is challenged, usually it goes into overdrive. And that's what happens here when Peter makes an even bolder statement in verse 35. He says, Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I mean, can you believe this? Peter now, now just think of that. What Peter is saying to Jesus, the Son of God. Peter has the audacity to contradict Jesus. That's how much bravado he has. He's basically telling Jesus, Jesus, you are dead wrong. It's unbelievable. His overconfidence causes him to believe in himself so much that he is now saying things contrary to what Jesus says about him. But the problem doesn't stop with Peter. Isn't it strange how the overconfidence of one can infect an entire group? The other disciples, man, they will not be left behind in all this. So they join in Peter's shallow pep rally for self in verse 35. But Jesus knows our inability to faithfully follow him on our own. And so, sure, in the garden, there's no doubt, in the garden, Peter goes to battle with a sword in his hand by Jesus' side. But after Jesus' arrest, he follows Jesus at a distance during his trial. Now, here's something we need to remember. It is a very short trip from self-confidence to self-deception. A very short trip from self-confidence to self-deception. To have a, a higher view of our own faithfulness than Jesus does. How many of you are like Peter? How many of us think we're incapable of falling away? When you hear about the fall of other Christ followers, how do you respond Oh, that could never happen to me. I'm better than that. Listen, there is a warning here, not just for Peter and the disciples, but for us. And the warning here is about the possibility of being overly confident in ourselves that we convince ourselves of what we want to believe. And the effect is we don't even hear what Jesus is trying to tell us in his word. We don't hear the counsel of other Christ followers. We don't hear the counsel of maybe parents. 
We don't hear the advice or whatever because our confidence in ourselves is so amplified that we now can't hear anything. Now, let's see how the story turns out, which brings us to verses 69 and 74. But before we look at the story, let me set the stage for you. At some point in the night, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. After a few hours praying, Judas, along with a band of soldiers, found Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus is now arrested, and all the disciples left him and fled, just as Jesus predicted. Jesus was then brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders assembled together and conspired to seek false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, to Peter's credit, he does come back to find Jesus. He fled in the garden. And where he fled to, we don't really know. What we do know is he comes back to find Jesus. In fact, according to verse 58, look what it says. Peter was following him, that is Jesus, at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the inn. So here's what's happening. Peter wants to know what's happening to Jesus. But he also, at the same time, he wants to keep a safe distance from Jesus. As one author put it, there is a slippery slope between following Jesus at a distance and denying Jesus. So far, Peter has been courageous. But now, he sat outside in the courtyard. He's no longer bold, brash Peter. Listen, instead, he is blending in with the crowd. And that's when he blows it. Notice how it progresses. First of all, Peter denies Jesus with a lie. He denies Jesus with a lie. He says, I don't know what you mean. A servant girl, of all things, came up to Peter and says in verse 69, Listen, you, you, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And Peter seems to be cut off guard by this. In fact, even scared by this servant girl's challenge. And so Peter gives this mumbled protest of ignorance, pretending that he doesn't know what she means. How many of you have teenagers that do that? You know what I mean then. Yeah, what? What? They play dumb about it. What? What do you mean? That's Peter. Peter says in verse 70, he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. Well, that's an indirect lie. Peter acts as if he has no clue why she would say such a preposterous thing as, you you were with Jesus, that Galilean. So seeking an escape. I mean, Peter tries to get away now. He moves from the courtyard to the entrance of the courtyard in verse 71. Peter's retreat, though, his physical retreat, listen to me, is telling us something. It's telling us what's happening in his soul, in his heart. He's moving further and further away from Jesus. He's looking for the closest exit, but it's too late. Listen, the sharks smell blood in the water. And so according to verse 71, what happens? Another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, Hey, that that man right there, he was with Jesus the Nazareth. 
Don't miss that phrase. It's an interesting phrase that Matthew uses here with Jesus. In fact, it's also used by the first servant girl in verse 69. So now we have that, we see that phrase used twice with Jesus. Now, it's rather interesting to note that if you fast forward to the book of Acts, there in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when the Jewish council was astonished by the boldness of Peter of John. And it actually says, and they recognized, that is Peter and John, that they had been with Jesus. So it's interesting. In Acts, Peter was honored to be accused of being with Jesus. But here in Matthew, the words with Jesus fills him with fear and dread. He is terrified to be associated with Jesus who's being sentenced to death just a few feet away. At this point, Peter feels trapped. What would he say? What would you say? Have you ever been cornered in the break room at work? You ever been cornered in the locker room at school? Can you believe anyone would believe what those Christians claim about Jesus? You're not one of them, are you? What do you do? How do you respond? Peter denies Jesus with a lie. He denies, I don't know who he is. I'm afraid to be associated with him. Number two, Peter denies Jesus with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, Peter's already denied Jesus once, and so it was rather easy to do it again. Except this time, Peter denies Jesus with an oath, according to verse 72. The first time, Peter told a simple lie and pretended ignorance about it all. The second time, he took an oath. Now, why an oath? Well, you only take an oath for one reason, and that is to convince people that you're actually telling the truth. But when you always tell the truth, there's no need to take an oath. In fact, it's interesting, you go back earlier in the book of Matthew to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus actually warned about taking oaths to mask a lie. In fact, only the bad guys take oaths in the book of Matthew. As one author notes, from Matthew's point of view, Peter joins an unsavory set of characters whose oaths are signs of their undoing. And worse still, Peter now disavows Jesus. He renounces Jesus here. You see, the first time Peter simply says something like this, I don't know the topic of what you're talking about. He's playing dumb. He's feigning ignorance. But here, the second time, Peter says, I don't know the man whom you're talking about, and he swears it with an oath, which now leads us to his third denial, where he denies Jesus with a curse. You see, the pressure gets even greater as more people begin asking Peter about his connection with Jesus. Verse 73 says, And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, For your accent betrays you. Now, can you just feel the increased intensity in all of this? You see, first it was just one little servant girl, one-on-one with Peter, challenging him. 
And then second, it was a, another servant girl who challenges Peter, but, but now a crowd is with them all. But third, right here, man, it's all these bystanders. It's a whole crowd of people challenging Peter, and they do it with their undeniable evidence against Peter. And what was that? His accent. You see, Peter sounded like a Galilean. Jesus was a Galilean. And that was enough for these bystanders to accuse him of being one of Jesus' disciples. As the accusations mount, Peter must have felt tense, for according to verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Peter now takes this denial to a whole nother level. He amps it up. Not only does he deny being a disciple of Jesus, but he claims he doesn't even know who Jesus is, and he does so with a curse. In other words, Peter says, man, if I am lying, may God strike me dead or send me to hell. That's the idea of the curse. Now, when faced with the fear and pressure of being associated with Jesus, Peter falls away. Man, he falls hard. He falls flat on his face here. Peter is a long, long ways now from his boastful comments he made just a few hours earlier. He has now moved from bad to worse to unthinkable with each denial of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. Thankfully, this is not a one-act drama that begins and ends with Peter's fall. There's a second act to it, which brings us to it. Peter remembers Jesus' words bitterly. Act 2. Peter remembers Jesus' words bitterly. Verse 74 actually delivers the whole punchline of Peter's fall when Matthew simply says, And immediately the rooster crowed. And then in verse 75, we see the lifeline of God's grace to Peter. Where Matthew records, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, in those two verses, what I want us to do, I want you to see something. Matthew's showing us stuff here. Matthew wants us to see how God actually used the rooster's crow and the tears of Peter to lead him to repentance and restoration. Look, the rooster's crow prompts Peter's memory of Jesus' words. Now, the Gospels at this point are unanimous. And when I say the Gospels, we're referring to to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels that each... Each record the story of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus, but do so with their own emphasis. And all four are unanimous here that the rooster crowed at the exact moment of Peter's third denial. And as the words of denial flew out of his mouth, somewhere off in the distance, the rooster begins to crow. And at that moment, Peter remembers. Well, what does he remember? He remembers the words of Jesus Christ earlier that night. He remembers Jesus' seemingly impossible prediction about him. In fact, one commentator put it this way. This hidden memory will pull the rope that will ring the bell of Peter's conscience. 
And so suddenly, it all became clear how brash he had been only a few hours earlier, how cocky he had been in the garden, how confident he was in his own strengths and abilities. But the sound of the rooster rings him into a solemn soberness. For the sound of the rooster meant Peter... I warned you, I warned, I tried to tell you that this would happen, and you didn't believe me. As another writer says, Peter boasted he would die before he would deny Jesus, but he does not even respond truthfully to a query from a powerless servant girl. You see, Peter had not only proven his foolishness, he had actually now deserted his friend and the Savior. And the effect on Peter is dramatic and powerful. He went out, Matthew tells us, and does what? He weeps bitterly. And those tears are important. His weeping is important. For notice the next point here. Peter's tears result in his repentance of sin and return to Jesus. They reflect his heart. Are these tears of repentance? Yes, I believe so. They are. Peter realized here at last what he had done. He realizes in these tears how far he had fallen, how much his denials had hurt the Lord. Peter's tears are the reflection of his repentance of sin. A repentance that would actually lead him to return to Jesus Christ. You know, here's a question we ought to think about. Have you ever ever wept over your sin? Have you ever wept over your sin like Peter did? Now the question is not, have you ever sinned? Right? I mean, that's true of all of us. The the, the question is, have you ever wept over it? Have you ever been so convicted by it? So, So ridden with guilt over it that it brings you to tears and you weep over your sin. Peter's bitter tears. They do something. They lead him to repentance. They are a reflection of his heart of repentance. In fact, it's quite interesting what the Bible says, where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Listen to it. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, you're going to see next Sunday, that's exactly what happened to Judas. His worldly sorrow brought him death. In fact, suicide. The Message Bible paraphrases it this way. Distress that drives us to God turns us around. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets and end up on the deathbed of regrets. Now again, as we'll see next Sunday, Peter weeps bitterly. And as we'll see next Sunday, Judas also wept. So what's the difference between Peter's tears and Judas' tears? Well, Judas was filled with remorse and regretted what he'd done. He was sorry. Oh, Judas was sorry. But he did not repent of his sin. And ultimately, his tears led to suicide. But Peter's tears here led to his repentance of sin. He's broken and it 
ultimately leads to his return to the Savior. You see, for Peter, his tears signal the breaking of his heart because of his sin. It's as David wrote in Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. And so let me tell you, tears are good. Man, if we can go through a lifetime of sinning and never weep about it, what does that say about our conscience and hearts? Tears are good if they lead to repentance and a turning back to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, like the world, we may weep and weep, and weep, and be sorry we got caught, but our tears do us no good if they only lead us to regret and despair. In his misplaced confidence, Peter denies Jesus repeatedly, but at the rooster's crow, Peter remembers Jesus' words bitterly, and this now brings us to the third act of Peter's fall and rise. Look at it, act number three. Jesus restores Peter graciously. The Apostle John records the restoration of Peter. This intimate conversation takes place after Jesus' resurrection. And it's recorded for us here in John 21, 15 to 17. I won't read it, but you can read it on your own. But it wasn't that Jesus doubted Peter's love here. Instead, Jesus was simply allowing Peter to affirm his love for Jesus for each denial he made on that terrible night. Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. Jesus now questions him here in John 21 three times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And this allows Peter to affirm three times his love for Jesus. And finally, the third time, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then finally, Jesus restores Peter, commanding him three times to care for his sheep. Now, there are two encouraging facts about the way Jesus treated Peter here. Beautiful. First of all, Jesus never criticized Peter. And then two, Jesus, most of all, never gave up on Peter. Think about it. Jesus knew about Peter's denial long before it ever happened. He knew what Peter would do. He knew how he would react. He knew the kind of man Peter would become afterward. And that's why Jesus told him earlier in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, when you have returned to me, not if you return, but when. You see, Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew after his fall, he would return to the Lord. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that wonderful? Jesus actually has more faith in Peter than Peter has in Jesus. Jesus also knew that Peter still had important work to do in the kingdom. And that's why Jesus said, when you have returned to me, do what? Strengthen your brethren. And that's what we see Peter doing in the early church. It's why he writes First and Second Peter. What is he doing in those two epistles? He is strengthening the church. He's strengthening us here, the brethren. And so though we fall and fell miserably, listen, by God's grace, Peter shows us that we can actually get up again and experience victory in Jesus Christ. That's what happened to Peter. His guilt was turned into grace, and his failure was turned into faithfulness. And you say, here's 
Where's the proof? Well, here's the proof. Peter did so much more for Jesus after his fall than he ever did before. So much more. Listen, before his fall, Peter was overconfident in himself. After his fall, after his restoration, Peter was now confident, you bet he was, but not in himself, but now in Jesus Christ. When he boldly preached about Jesus Christ to thousands of people in Jerusalem, Peter was the same man, but he was different on the inside. God actually used Peter's fall to radically change Peter's life. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's amazing grace. Now, there is so much in this story that should encourage us. But let me leave you with this final thought. Notice it coming up on the screen in your notes. And that is, there is always hope for the fallen. Always. There's always hope for the fallen. You say, how can that be? Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why. And because of the cross, listen to me, forgiven, not failure, defines the Christian who repents of sin and returns to Jesus. Listen to me. For the believer in Christ, listen to this, failure is never the final word. Just as Peter's failure did not define him. Yes, Peter's fall was horrible and humbling. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sin of Peter's denial. Not guilty was the final word for Peter. Even though he knew he did not deserve God's forgiveness. But Jesus had already settled Peter's account with the Father and gave him forgiveness as a free gift. And so now, because of the cross, the work that Jesus did on the cross, he was no longer Peter the failure. He is now Peter what? The forgiven. Now facing And admitting our failures is one way Jesus teaches us what the gospel really is. Do you know what our failures show us? When you own up to your failures, unlike Adam and Eve who blamed, Eve blames Adam, Adam blames, or Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and that's what we do. We have a culture of blame. No one takes responsibility. But when we are broken over sin, we take responsibility, we own up to it, we admit it. Listen, it teaches us something about ourselves. It shows us what we really are. And that is, we are great sinners. We are a mess. We are Peter's. But that's not what Jesus wants us to focus on at the, end, at the end of the day, he wants us to look to the cross and he wants to allow our failures to show us what Jesus really is. And that is, he is our great Savior. Yes, we are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. Think of it this way. Here at LifeBridge, the Church of Jesus Christ is simply a fellowship of forgiven failures. The question is, have you repented and are you forgiven? And through Peter's fall and rise, Jesus shows us 
how he can transform a failure into a rock of strength for his church. Remember, there's always hope for the fallen. Listen, if God can forgive Peter, God can forgive anybody. And if Peter can get back up again, then anybody can get up again. If, if, if you will repent, you own up, you own it, and you admit it, and you're broken by it, you repent, and then you return to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, there is always hope hope for the fallen. In other words, just run to the cross where Jesus has paid the price for your failure so that you now can be defined not by failure but by forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace for sinners like us. Help us to see ourselves for what we really are. And that is great sinners, but also help us to see what Jesus really is, a great Savior who died for us. And when we fall, may we run to the cross of Christ in repentance of our sin and receive your forgiveness so that we may be restored to the joy of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Instrumentals are going to play through a chorus. As the Spirit leads in your heart, will you respond? Will you respond?